Hello, it's Aisha. Before we get started this week, we wanted to remind you that time is running out to register to vote. You've only got until 11.59pm on the 26th of November. That's this Tuesday. So if you've moved house, maybe you're at uni, or if you've never voted before, you need to get this sorted ASAP if you want to be able to vote on the 12th of December. We'll put a link to the government voter registration page in the notes for this episode. All right, on with the show. Across the country, childcare costs are rising much faster than our pay packets. Childminders are normally around here about £65 a day, and nurseries could be up to £110-£120 a day. The childcare system in England is broken. Our nurseries are among the most expensive in the world, but our childcare professionals are some of the lowest paid workers in society. Once you add it all up, the annual cost comes to £6,003 a year. That's up a third in five years. For a long time, government policy on childcare has been badly thought out and severely underfunded. Last year, the government rolled out its programme of 30 hours free childcare for some working parents. But some nurseries and preschools can't afford to do it, as they claim there's a funding shortfall from the government. While others say they've passed on the cost of looking after children aged two and under to working parents. More recently, big international chains have moved into the sector. With notable inequalities in access and debt-fueled expansion, it's a microcosm of dodgy economics. So, what should be done? How could we fix the childcare system? And what would it mean for families and for the country if we finally got it right? Those are the big questions on the weekly economics podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. I'm so pleased to be joined by a fantastic panel of experts today. First up is Helen Penn, visiting professor at the Institute of Education at UCL. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thanks for being here. On the line, we've got Amy Martin, Creative Director of Impact Hub Birmingham. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thanks for being with us. And from the New Economics Foundation, Lucy Stevens, who's Head of Co-Production here at NEF. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so we're going to start with the basics. So, uh, Helen, beginning with you, how does the current childcare system in England work? Uh, It doesn't, I think that's my view. Um, It's very fragmented. It's split up between different kinds of provision. Nothing's very clear anymore. It's just a mess in in all sorts of ways. And it's an expensive mess. It's expensive Mm. for parents. It's, it's, It's... it's hard going for staff. You mm. don't get paid much. Okay, so I've heard something about Sure Start centres. What are they? Um, they were an initiative of the Labour government to um, try and enhance community responsiveness towards childcare. But I think they weren't really very thought out and too much was heaped on them. The trouble is they weren't really integrated into the rest of the system. Mm. So they were apart from nursery education, they were apart from childcare. And whilst they were a sort of valiant effort, they were very easily got rid of because they were just freestanding and not linked to anything else much. And mm. um, the results were much more ambiguous than the government expected. You know, it was a, in a way, it was a cheap option for the government. We can cure poverty within a generation just by providing these centres, mm-hmm. these sure start centres. And it was always a fallacy. Okay, so so just to kind of, is it possible to just describe for me, like, what is the basic provision that is offered at the moment in terms of childcare? 
Well, it's changing all the time. Mm. So um, 20 years ago, nursery education was really the thing that was supposed to benefit children the most. And nursery education was a fantastically high standard, particularly the nursery schools. But it was education, it didn't cater for working parents. And so all sorts of alternative provisions sprung up to provide childcare for working parents. And it's always been our problem in this country that we've never really been able to amalgamate the two properly. On the one hand, we have this really good system which suits children, but not parents. Mm. And what suits parents is sometimes very hard going on the children. Okay. So, Lucy, we've got... So my understanding is that at the moment, there's nursery education, childcare provision, right? That's kind of... That's free and accessible. So you've got nursery schools where you've got a head teacher and is very much on the on the same lines as a school, as a primary school. Yeah. So there's a, a head teacher and, as, as Helen says, a well-educated... Um, more well-paid team of childcare professionals that work there and traditionally that's been the area that has been best at serving children with special educational needs and disabilities and very proactively tackling um, children who are growing up in deprivation Mm. and alongside that then you have the paid childcare settings um, which are more likely to be open between maybe 7.38 in the morning through till 6 in the evening. And they are, as Helen says, more designed to be there to kind of serve the needs of families who need care whilst they're at work. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the underpinning thing in a way with childcare. It's one of the problems. It it can solve two things, but sometimes those two things support each other and sometimes they're in tension. It, Mm -hmm. It can give every child a really high quality early year experience and a good start. But that often is is needed through kind of short but high quality interventions, maybe three or four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And it can give parents an opportunity to get back into work, particularly women. And that requires childcare that matches what a working day looks like, which on top of then commutes can get longer and longer and longer. And at the moment, that's not included or free at that level. So that traditionally has been what parents have had to pay for. um, And this is where government has come in with policies to give parents free hours. So there are kind of a number of different ways you can get free hours. And then alongside all of this, there's also a child minder workforce who are Mm -hmm. self-employed individuals working from their own homes who will often have kind of between one and four children, maybe one and five, depending on the ages of the children. And that often wraps maybe some of the younger children um, before they start school, but would also involve picking up children from school and bringing them home after school as well. Mm. Because childcare, most of what we're talking about with childcare is naught to five. Yeah. But childcare and the needs of particularly working families goes on till children are 12, 13. Mm. And the, the Which school is part of why it's so hard match. to describe. Yeah. And so it's not as simple as just between naught and five, there's this standard provision for no. parents, you know, regardless, and then whatever. It's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, unfortunately. In this country. Okay, okay. And we're going to get on to that. Um, yeah. No. Um, Amy, a question for you. Is this, is it different in your understanding in different parts of the country or is it the same everywhere? Yeah, unfortunately, it's the same everywhere. It's worth um, pointing out as well, it's a huge difference between nursery school provision and other types of um, private, voluntary and independent private um, childcare is that one is, is for profit and one isn't. Uh. So the other kind of layer to the, to the, to the awfulness is that childcare is, is a for-profit business, which fundamentally is, is wrong because you're talking about human development, you're talking about a time-limited period in a, in a, in a child's life. 
putting that against for profit uh, notions and the shareholders and people wanting to make profit just of course it just is it's, it's as ridiculous as you would imagine it to be Mm, okay, so Amy's already got us started, but my next question is, why is the system broken? So yeah. Helen, I'm gonna, yeah, Helen, I'm gonna, I'm come to you first. But yeah, is it about funding? Is is it profit? As Amy says, what's what's gone wrong? Well, at the heart of it is this division between care and education that we've never really resolved. You know, education is a free, as of right, entitlement, and care is um, a service for parents, which they must buy. Um, and there've been various attempts to solve it. And we were nearly there in a way in the late 1990s with the, the Labour government until they brought in the Act in 2006 which said local authorities must only provide care as a last resort. And then any provision that could possibly be sold off from local authorities was sold off to private entrepreneurs. Mm. And the most remarkable thing about the last 20 years has been this growth of the private market. I mean, it has just been extraordinary. And it's not just individual private providers, it's big companies muscling in on the act. The largest provider provides 33,000 places. One organisation provides 33,000 places for children. Mm. up and down the country and overall more than 100,000 children are with these big company nurseries. Yeah, the stats that we have is uh, 84% of early years provision is England in England is now run by private providers. Is yeah, that true? But the, there are distinctions to be made between the private providers. So there are little providers, mom and pop operations they're mm. sometimes called. Mm. Who Maybe might, an owner manager yes. who has one site or possibly two sites yes. but is very connected and invested in their community. Yes. Mm. Whereas you have these big companies, increasingly international companies. Mm -hmm. So buy-ins from the Chinese from the Americans, from the French and so on, into the system because it's profitable. Mm, so kind of like, yeah, kind of like the French ownership of British uh, electricity, electric systems. Electric systems? What's the word? Electric companies, yeah. Um, and those very big companies are increasingly complex in their business structures as well. So mm. you would see them running at a local level with staff still on very low wages, but through their various offshoots of companies and Shifting money between them, there's there's still kind of large profits being made at some point in the system. Yeah, mm. there's, so there's a whole lot of Carillion type companies yeah. that are now offering childcare, mm. and we're very different to the rest of Europe on that. So, eighty four percent here is provided by private companies, whereas in Germany it's only three percent, and in France it's about four percent. So wow. there's a difference, a very big difference, just over the water, um, yeah. and that does have a huge impact then on both the quality of the experience for the children and, as Amy was saying, kind of what is that main driver and motivation for providing this service? Mm. It has a huge impact also on the staff and the terms and conditions of the staff. And one of the things that we know from all of the research is the quality of the provision is intricately linked to the quality of the employment and experience of those staff as well. So when you've got people on very low wages, the level of qualification that they access tends to be lower and their sense of control and engagement in their work is very very hard as well so the mm. overall experience of the children is worse too so you've got a model that is to some extent driving yes. you away from the high quality provision that, that you're after so nursery operators say that staffing is their biggest problem um mm. you know recruiting and re training staff and as a result some of these big companies now run their own apprenticeship schemes so they can get very young um unskilled women in 
to work mm. and then they'll train them in-house. What that good that does them out of house, I don't know. But something like 50% of staff now are, are trainees of one kind or another. Wow. Um, so I want to dive into the impact on children and staff a little bit later, but just, yeah. to, just to stick for a second with um, why the system's broken. Amy, do you have other thoughts on, other than this, you know, privatisation and uh, profit-driven models, are there other reasons, uh, in the UK at least, why the childcare system is so broken? Well, it's certainly broken from the point of view from the, uh, of the family as well. Uh, and mm. I know that firsthand. I have three children who are all under five, and I've currently got the Rubik's Cube of having two children uh, under three, both in, in part-time childcare. And generally, most families, their childcare bill comes to, to be about the same amount that they're paying on their mortgage or, or on their rent payments. Wow. I think, is it 27% of your income goes towards childcare? I think, Lucy, I'm not sure you have the percentage on that. Yeah, it's up around that, absolutely. Yeah makes people feel incredibly stuck. It's just incredibly incongruent with the, this idea that you have to work more to pay for the childcare mm. when really we should be talking about what's best for, for families to thrive. And also that's very much for the kind of the general nine to five worker type model. There really mm. is hardly any offer for people who are freelancers or work in different ways who perhaps do shift work. Mm. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about impact. Obviously, we've touched upon it a little bit, but um, yeah, just to come back to you, Lucy, what what do you think are some of the impacts both on children and on staff in in the current model that we have? So one of the things that, that is increasingly obvious is in certain areas of the country, there's um, over-provision. So you've got lots of nurseries clustered in some areas and then under-provision in other areas. So that means for some families, childcare just really isn't an option, that, that, that mm. it's too far away, particularly for families who are on a low income and who won't see any return from, from wages after paying for for. For their care, and we've seen the cost of childcare year on year go up much more than pay rates are increasing. So people mm. are increasingly sort of disconnected, particularly on lower incomes. Yeah. So it means that some children are missing out entirely and are reliant on friends and family to fill that gap. And mm. again, while we're thinking about a quality start for mm. everybody, there is a, a already a recognised um, gap between families, uh, children from lower incomes starting school behind their peers. And what's happening at the moment with the way that childcare is being provided is you're sort of supercharging that. Those families that can afford to pay and may have, in the terms of some of the new policies, higher cultural capital than others, <laughs> I did inverted commas on that one, um, are able then also to access the childcare, which is often being provided by other women on lower incomes. And some of the work we're doing in Deptford at the moment is meeting lots and lots of women who have worked in the childcare sector and can't afford to go back themselves because they can't afford to pay for the care that their children need at the same time. So you're losing people from the workforce who really care about it. Um, and their children also then are missing out on some of those opportunities that, that others would get. Mm. Helen, what are some of the other impacts? Well, as Lucy says, there's a real um, differential in access mm. so that overall richer families, more mobile families can access the provision, particularly the company provision. And in turn, the company provision only wants those parents who are not going to be any kind of risk in paying Okay. So they go to some lengths to exclude parents who can't pay. Mm. And if children cost more, if they're uh, more vulnerable, they have some sort of disability, 
and they need more service, then the companies don't really want them either okay. because they're just too costly to have. Mm. Um, and there's also the question of accountability. So yeah. parents can choose, but they can take it or leave it. They have no voice other than in commenting about their own child. There's no sense of any kind of collective provision mm. of parents or staff having any kind of say in what's going on. I mean, if the chain stretches all the way back to China or Washington mm. or whatever, what difference can parents or anybody else make? The company is controlled by somebody who's not even a childcare expert but a financial whiz kid. Yeah. Mm. And mm. that's one of these huge myths of, of the marketplace, that there's this idealised consumer power, but actually what you're seeing is parents feeling that they're competing with one another for the few places that are affordable and are available locally. And the other thing that happens as a parent, and it definitely happened with my daughters, once you find a place and they're settled, even if it's not perfect, it's very disruptive and very hard to move them on. So once you are in, often you're sort of stuck there. And, and again, spoken to, to parents and families who've seen their childcare fees ra be raised by 40% in a matter of years. Mm. And they kind of suck it up because actually the difficulty of, of doing anything different is significant and there are not lots of other options and lots of other places. I think the other thing that we're talking about, and we ha we're talking around it, and I'm sure we're all thinking of it, we haven't said it, is, is what also happens in terms of families is if you can't afford to get your child into care, if you can't afford to get back to work, who is it who ends up mm. being that person who stays at home, who stays out of the workplace? And it's women. So we've got a 98% female workforce in terms of the childcare carers themselves, but we're also yeah. seeing the biggest impact of poor childcare being also on women. And there, there has been talk in recent years of the parent penalty being experienced by men also who are choosing to work more flexibly in order that they can spend more time at home and they're seeing it, it harder to progress in the workplace and seeing that their salary is, is mm. less in line with some of their other kind of male peers but it's largely experienced by women. Mm. I know we're kind of I imagine loads to talk about this in terms of facts and figures in light of everything we've been saying, but this is the Weekly Economics podcast. So we do have a question around the economics of this of this all. So just, yeah, starting with you, Lucy, what, what impact does all of this have on the economy? I think one of the things that's really interesting is looking outside of the UK. So about 10 years ago in Australia, there was a nursery chain called ABC Nurseries who became too big to fail. Um, so they had thousands and thousands of sites and went under when the economy imploded because lots of their... Um, projected income was actually on the basis of uh, was attached to the value of the properties that that they owned and not just the money they were making from providing childcare. when they went under they were too big to fail because that the economy of australia could not um, withstand that number of families no longer being able to go out to work so mm. it's worth just having that in our mind that this is a critical infrastructure as important as roads and railways this is how stuff gets done mm. but the cost in the UK economy is about 5.6 billion a year that's what the childcare market is worth but of that um, only 3.6 billion comes from government and the rest is then paid for by families themselves. One of the things that concerns me is the lack of accountability and the lack of monitoring so that we don't really know what happens to all this money that the government pours in. Mm. It's a lot of money to spend and the results don't seem too good. Lucy talked a little bit about uh, other countries and the comparison yes. there. Are there. Can you say more about that? Other places yes. that are doing this? 
Well, I think we must count as being amongst the worst in the world, never mind in Europe. I, um, wow. Only America is worse okay. in terms of its childcare provision. Mm. It's partly that systems are more integrated, that mm. people, that governments have understood the, the relationship between care and education and tried to, to resolve it. Elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. yes. And also that even if parents pay, in most countries there's a fee ceiling so that you would only pay up to, at the most, 15% of household income mm -hmm. for your childcare. And that means more regulation. And I think it is also the case that regulation is much tighter in a lot of other countries about where nurseries open, where they're sited, what happens when they close down or taken over. All these kinds of things are much more carefully controlled. So I hear that all that stuff's pretty lax then? Yes. Well, it's really difficult. So because we offer free hours to families, so if you have a two-year-old and you're in the 40% most deprived families at the moment, then you would qualify for 15 free hours of childcare every week. If you've got a three- and four-year-old and you're not working, you would also qualify for 15 free hours a week. If you are a working family and earning at least 16 hours minimum wage and up to just under £200,000 joint income, then you can qualify for 30 free hours of childcare per week. Um, those are just term time, so 38 weeks of the year, not all 52 weeks of the year. But one of the problems is that money being invested by government, many providers are saying, and, and particularly some of the nursery schools are saying, it doesn't reflect the true costs of providing that care. Okay. And it's being given to families to essentially kind of go out almost as vouchers to shop around instead of saying... This infrastructure is really, really important. And so we will invest directly in nurseries and then trust that they will organise their care in the way that is, is most valuable. Local authorities are really weak in the equation here because their role is, I think the term is market shapers. So they, oh. they're to guide and encourage people to improve quality, which they do fairly well, but but also they don't have any say over where these nurseries set up. So this idea that you are getting kind of over-provision in some areas and, and under in others, they have very little control over that. Whereas if they were directly funding and investing in nurseries, they could say, we don't need another one in the posh estate at the top of the hill, but actually we're, we're, we're missing places down here and we can guarantee fees for every child. You just need to make sure the provision is available there so they, they have very little control over the moment because of the way in which the money comes into the system so for the purposes of of hope and <laughs> and also role modeling what could be different can anyone give me an example of like another country that has has nailed this or, or has come much closer to nailing this well uh, the example that's often quoted is norway although it's a tiny country really but they have a large private sector mm. But they have very tight regulations, and so there's not really very much difference for the parents between using a private day nursery or a public day nursery. They, they adhere to the same standards, they admit the same children, and so on. Whereas and they have a fee cap there as well, don't they? They have a fee cap, of course yeah. they have a fee cap. But here, the big nursery chains are very unwilling, because it's not profitable enough just to take the government money, that parents must stop it up. Mm. They were... You know, they're not prepared to take part-time children, 15 hours is part-time. They're not prepared to do things that will lessen their, their, their profitability. And there's nothing saying they have to. They just get to no. choose. Okay, so there's no... There are conversations and they, they are they potentially very, very encouraged, but yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so for the rest of the conversation, <laughs> I would like to also talk about solutions because yeah. we're coming to the end. And so I want us to start by talking about solutions that have been tried in the past and that are being suggested now. So I'm going to start with you, Amy. Can you share with us any uh, suggestions, things you know of that have been tried in the past to remedy these kind of seemingly um, unfixable things and anything that's being proposed now that you know of to speak to some of them? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. One of the, the things that really caught my attention at the beginning of, um, of my journey into exploring different types of more radical childcare is is um, a parent-led childcare innovation. So that's when parents work collaboratively with childcare workers to create parent, um, parent-led co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some special ones uh, in London, and I'm sure Lucy can talk about um, the initiatives that uh, Neff has been involved in there. So I would say that that's, that's certainly one of the um, one of the things that got, kind of got me excited um, at the very beginning. Um, my own experience is setting up a, a work-based crash at Impact Hub in mm. Birmingham, um, and this for nomadic and freelance workers. Um, and we were trying to subvert the kind of crash offer. So um, I, you get crashes in Ikea um, and other Swedish <laughs> supermarkets and in um, gyms and various places. And generally, crashes are you kind of park your kids with someone wearing a fleece and then you go and work out or you go and watch a film or something. So we were using the crash model to try and um, work in favour of... Um, of freelance parents. Mm. So the freelancers have to, they, the parents have to stay on site while the children um, are close by. That's the kind of, um, through, the, through the eyes of Ofsted, that's what a crash is. Okay, and how's that? So, yeah, it works really well. Um, it's, it's surprising how much work you can get done with only three hours of childcare. Mm. It has to be more relational because it's three hours of childcare. So what do you, what do you mean when you say relational? What does that mean? It means that you have a you have a relationship with the people who are looking after your children, and it's much oh, okay. more as parents. It, yeah. feels, it feels more like a family. It feels mm. as though this is an extension of your own home, rather than something that where you you kind of stand in the in the lobby, you hand your child over to to somebody that perhaps you haven't seen before, and then you pick them up at a particular time. I kind of advocate for for this as an inroad into a different type of childcare, but also just making the point that. There have to be lots of different types in order to for us to really explore um, the future of, of, of childcare in in, a, in today's society. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, what else do we have? What's been done in the past? And it, can anyone tell me what the what the current parties are saying about this? Is there anything exciting coming out in the manifestos? The thing that kind of got me a little bit excited in um, what Labour is putting in their manifesto is just the change of wording. They're talking about, um, as we have mentioned before, they're, they're talking about early childhood education. They don't mention the word childcare until much further down on their kind of um, on their website, which I think is is quite mm. exciting. Um, so they're talking about human flourishing rather than something that enables women to go back to work. So just to, just a quick one on that. I thought that was quite exciting. Okay, okay. Uh, And there are policies coming through. I I guess most of the policies are talking, the headlines are about how many free hours people will be entitled to. So the Lib Dems have said they would want to make free hours available from the end of maternity leave. So at the moment, that would be from nine months old. People could get free hours um, longer 
uh, more hours available each week and this sort of thing. The worry with, with all these policies, and it feels like a bit of a bidding war for how many free hours can be given away. As we talked about before, at the moment, those free hours are not paying decent wages for the staff and not enabling good quality provision. Mm. So we need to get behind not just how many hours people get, but actually how we fund that infrastructure to make sure that it's going where we want it to go and that it's not losing lots of public investment back into private for-profit shareholders um, and accountants' pockets. Um, So, yeah, some of the policies are starting to to look at that. Labour has talked a little bit more about upfront investment rather than, but there's still a question mark Helen and I were talking about in terms of whether that's still attached to the number of children. If you think that 53% of childcare places now are provided by big companies, mm. then whatever party it is has to address this. I mean, they have to address the, it in elder care and all sorts of other areas too. We've got companies with offshore accounts who are manipulating debt, who are just playing around with money on the backs of the, the childcare service. And that should stop. And, and there is, are that, various... is any party looking at that? Well, not as far as I'm aware. Well, maybe not they are. Not to the level that we would want, I think. I mean, I mean, they may be, in general, looking at the financialization and all the problems that that causes. Mm. I mean, certainly there's a lot of talk about it in general, but I don't think it's been applied to childcare particularly. Mm. I think the regulations just have to be strengthened about, you know, the, the companies that have offshore accounts, inward investment without any kind of caution... Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that some foreign company can just buy in a whole chain of nurseries and run them is, is just shocking. Mm. And it's it's not distant history that, that it used to be very different. This is a very recent phenomenon. Yes, yes, it's yes. moving incredibly quickly, um, but it, there is a, an opportunity to intervene and switch things around. And the National Campaign for Childcare saw local communities, particularly led by women, mobilising to provide childcare in their areas. And and that sense of kind of locally organised, locally run, more democratic, more transparent, yes. more accountable to the communities in which it's based. That that's still here in our in our history, but we have gone quite far from it just at the moment. So policies that can start to bring us back into that mm-hmm. sense of yeah. how do we make make this investment that we know can produce huge net returns for society, both in terms of enabling more people to work, but also in creating really high-quality, longer-term experiences for for young children. So not only financial controls, but regulations at the level of the nursery, like fee capping, Mm. and asking all nurseries to think about organising management committees. I mean, that's what happens in Norway. staff and parents Mm. on the board alongside managers and directors so that parents have a direct role in in helping to organize how that nursery and how that provision is working the levels of union membership particularly for staff in private nurseries is very very small and sometimes it's actively discouraged so Mm. opportunities for collective bargaining amongst that group of workers so that they do have more collective voice it's better in the nursery schools through some of the education unions historically it's been much stronger Mm. and they have better terms and conditions as a result so yeah having a a much more kind of proactive opportunity for that collective bargaining but also that local democratic voice within each setting so Mm. that parents are seen to be genuinely partners in the provision rather than these kind of customers who may come and go. 
Yes, I think we can't really now go back to public provision. It's too private provision is too too widespread and too entrenched, and we can't make that kind of upheaval. But we certainly could think much more creatively about how it could be regulated. Mm. I mean, we're pretty much there already. But you know, we like to wrap up with kind of your hot take recommendations for for the future. We've covered quite (laughs) a few of them, (laughs) but I know Lucy that you've you know you've written a report on this. Are there are, are there any kind of other headline recommendations? from that that you wanted to lift up we will only be able to achieve this if we shift the way in which we fund it so that continuing to rely on individual families to somehow become great consumers and shift the marketplace lots of inverted commas there is not going to get us where we need to go so we need to think about investment directly in nursery provision making sure it is is the amount that we need but also that there's a level of accountability and transparency around where that money goes and how it's spent so as Helen says more investment directly into provision must also come with um, a promise of staff being paid at least real living wage, but ideally much more than that, and with an investment in their continuous training and development so that the quality of nurseries can go up. But also there should be expectations around management structures, accountability and transparency that can be demonstrated. And it doesn't matter who those providers are, so long as they can show that that they can operate in that way. But we've been doing some work directly with parents down in Deptford. And the thing that everyone always talks about, the first question everyone has when you talk about people being more directly involved in childcare is, will parents have time? And -hmm. we've met hundreds of parents who are really concerned that at the moment they feel quite shut out of the care that their children are accessing and they want to play a greater role and they personally feel really isolated. It's a very difficult time being a parent of a young child, particularly in big cities where you don't necessarily have your family networks around. It can feel very lonely, it can feel quite isolating and it's a really difficult job to do as a parent. So a nursery approach and provision that can also help to build a family of families around those people who are taking part is also just as important. I'd say also the bottom line for me is child rights. I mean, all children should be entitled to good provision for their own future, for our future. And we're so far away of thinking of children in those terms as having a right to good care and education. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. I mean, I've, I've certainly learnt a lot. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for joining me. Amy Martin from Impact Hub Birmingham, Helen Penn from the Institute for Education at UCL, and Lucy Stevens from NEF. Thanks so much for being here. If you've enjoyed this episode, lovely listener, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week.